from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet, There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How about, ooh, here's something we can talk about. There is an Am I the Asshole going around today. Mm. How do you feel about music lessons for your children? Uh, Because this woman said, am I the asshole? Because um, my daughter is doing these recitals and my husband comes and my mother-in-law shows up and she just criticizes my daughter after every performance. Here's what you did wrong. You weren't that perfect today this concert could have used a lot of work. Like she's really nasty about it and the kid runs away crying. But apparently the mother and the mother-in-law already do not speak to each other. Mm-hmm. And when the mother brings this up to her husband, he's all, well, she's just trying to help and you're just using this as an excuse to attack her and blah, blah, blah. Um, even though uh, this kid is like crying over these reactions and it's really hurting her self-esteem and she's getting worse in her performances because she's more self-conscious about it. The mom says, Mm -hmm. and she's like, and she says this whole time, my husband has told me that these piano lessons are a waste of time and money anyway, and that she should be doing more practical things than learning music. Obviously I'm totally on mom's side here. That is insane and horrible, but also just like, 
people, you got to learn each other before you get married, people. Like, you should be knowing things like, do you think that music lessons are a waste of time? Or do you think that they're a valuable thing? Like, you don't need to ask that question directly, but I feel like (laughs) it's the kind of thing you would know about someone through getting to know them. Maybe so, yeah. Not that it couldn't be a surprise, but... Maybe or he just sucks. don't feel like paying for him. At the, like he's like, in theory, they were great, but now I'm actually <laughs> signing these checks, and I feel like she's Maybe. not gonna give a fuck about this in two weeks. Maybe, yeah. Well, I will say that I rolled my eyes incredibly hard when I heard that music lessons are not practical. Yes, there is so much research out there that oh shows God. that if you study music, you are do better in math and yep. you do better in like many subjects yep. because it challenges your brain in a very good way and yep. it's interesting and cool and it makes you appreciate music more later on in life. Anyway, arts education is practical. <laughs> and awesome and cool. So get yourselves together, people. And also, stop worrying from from childhood what skills you can monetize later in life and which true, ones you can. Also, so stop it. Stop it. It's going to be okay. If you do have to monetize, think about the scholarships. Well, that's now you have to think about thing. the scholarships. Definitely a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but stop thinking about the scholarships. Also, stop thinking about money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to meet this guy where he is. No, okay. <laughs> I'm, see, I'm not trying to. Be, this is this is you and me. Having, you know, I'm out here being like, stop yelling at my daughter. She's doing her best, and you're like, shape up, kid. What am I paying for these classes for? You're never going to amount to anything. That's not true. I just said very practical now, and cool. No, I've already established the dynamic here in Damn, my mind. Slander. Can't go back. Slanderous. <laughs> Defaming me. Marriage at an all-time strongest. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Hey, everyone. (laughs) Welcome Welcome to the the sound booth today. (laughs) (laughs) It's a silly day. We've got a silly episode, that's for sure. Very true. Yeah, very excited to share this one with you. I hope everybody's doing well. Yeah. Uh, Man, it's warming up, isn't it? Just to jump into the weather small talk. (laughs) Oh, God. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. well, Georgia. at least in Georgia. Yeah. Oh, God. It's probably still snowing in Minnesota. (laughs) 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 One assumes it Uh, is about to be 24 hour sun sunlight in like Norway or Iceland or something. Oh, all right. Pretty soon. All right. So I just saw that. Good luck to y'all up there. (laughs) They were like, when are you coming to visit? I was like, I don't know. It seems cool in one way. Like they're showing pictures from, you know, allegedly 11 p.m. And it's like a sunset looking and it's pretty cool, but I'll, also I feel like it would be very hard to get like real sleep and feel rested. Yeah, I don't know. I'll say I am way more interested in the always night oh, yeah? part than the always day. Always night is like, I mean, I'm a night person. So the idea that I could sleep all night, get up and still spend all night being up, that's awesome <laughs> to me. <laughs> like I could stay up, all, up night all night playing video games and still get a full night's sleep. <laughs> Sounds awesome to me. I don't. I think I might Go get take a night hike. But maybe not. Yeah, I don't go I, outside that much. So either way, <laughs> why would well, I care? That's fair. Either way, I couldn't do it for more than like you know a couple weeks. But it would be cool to experience. It'd be cool to experience. Kind of uh, either or, but sure. both would be, of course, best. Always day <laughs> feels a little like severance, like purgatory, hell kind mm-hmm. of thing, or it's just like, oh my god, I just slept for eight hours and it's still sunny, and it's the end of the day and it's still sunny. That. Oof, I don't know. That creeps me out more mm-hmm. than Always Dark. I don't know why. Did you see that movie Insomnia? Yeah, that's uh, uh, uh but but that's Christopher Nolan. Yeah, but I never mm-hmm. saw it. I should see it. Kind of like Midsommar. It was just like it shouldn't be light right now with all these right. horrible things happening, but like it is bright daylight. 
So anyway, so it's, it's a pretty cool movie. Yeah. Well, I hope. Uh, <laughs> good luck up there for all you uh, day dwellers. Right. Tell us if you, yeah, if anyone <laughs> who experiences twenty-four hour daylight and night times is listening to this, uh-huh. tell us what it's like. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm interested. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, also, like, hey, uh, we, you know, we say this at the end of the episode, but I just want to throw it at the beginning, like. Jump on Apple Podcasts and throw us a review if you're having a good time on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, and it feels good and it makes uh, other people listen to the show too. So, yeah. you know, just since since everybody tunes out at the end, I'm never listening <laughs> by the end of the episode. So why would you? I hope you stay for the song button. <laughs> True. There's a great song at the end for those who've never made it. <laughs> They're like, there's a song button? Yeah. But today is very exciting and very ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's for damn sure. Because, hey, everybody, I want you to go check on your silverware. <laughs> go, go, I'll give you a minute. Go to your drawer. Uh, take a look at your silverware. See what the brand is on it. Does it say Oneida? It might, because that was one of the most popular flatware companies in the country. But did you know that that silverware company started as a hyper-religious sex cult? Uh, Bet you didn't know that. What? All your forks and spoons were definitely brought about by a bunch of forking and spooning. (laughs) (laughs) So this community, the Oneida community, was this weirdly progressive sort of cult that (laughs) believed in autonomy for women over their bodies. And they encouraged sexual pleasure for women in particular. And they frowned upon traditional patriarchal marriages and community members all shared and rotated through jobs. Everyone pitched in. Everyone was provided for. It sounds like kind of an amazing experience. Yeah, I'm in. Where, but, where's the Oneida um, sign-up sheet? Well, you know that we can't have nice things in this country. Aww. So as all <laughs> things must come to an end, so did the Oneida community. Um, they also had a little bit of a problem with eugenics. No. Yeah, sorry. But uh, we have got to hear their full story here. Uh, so let's... I, I, we, there's nothing else to say. Let's just dive in. I'm forking ready. <laughs> hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Okay, so John Humphrey Noyes is our, uh, I don't want to say hero, but uh, our main <laughs> character today. He was born in Brattleboro, Vermont in 1811. Uh, his family was well-connected and influential. His cousin was Rutherford B. Hayes, the 19th president of the United States. little trivia for all you Hayes heads out there. <laughs> Uh, John's father was a congressman who had graduated from Dartmouth, and his mother was this deeply religious woman who raised her children to, quote, fear the Lord. But John grew up with really very little interest in religion. He actually kind of had a lot of cynicism about it, probably pressed a little too hard on him, what it sounds like from his mom. By the time he grew up and was accepted to Dartmouth in 1826, John wanted to be a lawyer. But in 1831, just as he was graduating, his mother came to him and was like, Hey, I got you tickets to this really fun party. 
I think you will love it. It's like a four-day festival. It sounds like so much fun. All the cool kids will be there, you know, dabbing and flossing, doing their little TikToks. Oof. I'm a cool mom. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And John was like, parents just don't understand. (laughs) But he agreed to go to the retreat. Well, it turns out it was not a fire festival. (laughs) It was a four-day revival meeting under the ministry of Charles Finney. So she trapped him at this religious meeting. (laughs) Right, yeah. And these meetings were like big multi-day conventions that were super welcoming to non-Christians in an attempt to win them over. And Charles Finney was this huge figure at the time. He's been called the father of revivalism. He was this flamboyant Presbyterian preacher who believed that people had the free will to choose salvation. Yeah. Uh, Finney was also super progressive. He pushed for equal education for women and for black Americans. And he was an aggressive abolitionist who refused to give communion to slaveholders. Yeah, this guy sounds super cool. That's pretty awesome. I mean, especially, especially after the time. After the time for a religious thing. You got to say this. This was like mid 19th century. Uh, you've got the Industrial Revolution coming up. I was reading that at this point, there was a lot of different smaller religious sects mm-hmm. popping up. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were going into some really kooky directions with religion, especially. Um, and, you know, with that came also some very sane and progressive directions like, yeah. you know, hey, maybe people are people and yeah. uh, maybe we can treat each other with respect and civility. And maybe that's what the Bible says. Like, you know, it, it kind of went in all directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. John begrudgingly took mom's little trip and he probably sat there with his arms folded, like (laughs) thinking to himself that this whole thing's so stupid, mom. I'm so sick of religion. Like people just take people just take religion and they just use it to convince people that whatever they think is true is the truth. But I'm I'm going to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Totally different. Not like that. (laughs) But um, but after this meeting, according to NewYorkHistory.com, John got very, very sick, like this really bad cold, super intense fever. But he got so sick that he actually thought that he was going to die. And what do people who think they're probably going to die often do? They get to thinking pretty hard about God and the afterlife and, you know, what their whole life was about and all these things. And this was enough to totally flip John's circuits. I mean, he spent all week with this like really charismatic preacher Mm -hmm. telling him about God and the afterlife and choosing salvation and choosing to give yourself over to the Lord and all this stuff. And then immediately after that, he's on death's door. Mm -hmm. John is, uh, you know, automatically starts thinking like, oh my God, this is a sign. Mm -hmm. Uh, The God is telling me, listen to this guy or I'm going to kill you. So he flips and all of a sudden he found religion. His mom, you know, probably like, well, I'm not going to gloat or anything, but, you know, maybe you should listen to your mother next time. (laughs) You could have been like this your whole life. (laughs) So John went to Yale Divinity School after that and put all his evil litigation dreams behind him. (laughs) And he devoted himself to becoming a minister. And during his second year of school, he tried to do some biblical math and figure out when exactly Christ was doing his big comeback tour. Right. So he was like, if Jesus leaves heaven for earth at 6 p.m. going at the speed of God and the angels blow their trumpets at negative 12 decibels and carry the two sulfur C times the square root of revelations, then (gasps) leap in Lazarus. Jesus 
has already come back. What? And he thought that the second coming of Christ had actually taken place in 70 AD. Wow. So this basically meant that we were not waiting around for Jesus to come back and end the world. Rather, it was up to us to bring about Jesus's millennial kingdom, which was the thousand years where Christ would rule over a utopia on Earth. But John got really into this new idea about salvation that he called perfectionism. And Finney had taught a similar idea. The idea is that it is possible to be totally free of sin within your life on Earth. Now, I was not raised Christian. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand Christianity that well. I was not really raised with any religion, and they all confuse me a great deal. <laughs> um, but as I understand it, uh, that's especially at this time, that kind of went against a lot of the beliefs that man is inherently sinful. If you repent of your sins all your life by going to church and okay. doing the things that your preacher tells you to do to right. absolve yourself of all of the bad things that you do, depending which sect you're in, that right. changes. But you have to, it's inherently in you that you will sin and you're bad. Right. Like you're, it's a you're inherently bad as a human being. Perpetual maintenance thing you've got to go through. Yeah, like yeah. There's original sin in all for... of us and there's nothing to be done about okay. it. You just have to accept Jesus into your heart. And then when you die, you'll get to go to heaven because he knows you didn't mean it. Uh-huh. All the sin that you were doing, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but John and, yeah, somebody write into us and, and clear that up if you want uh, without, without a diatribe, please. <laughs> Um, But John thought, no, there's actually a way to be totally clear and free of all your sins. And he was so into this that he said he was not only totally free of sin, but that actually he was at a point where he could not sin because he had surrendered himself to God with a pure and perfect heart. He even went so far as to say that he had such a great relationship with God that he was free of any moral obligations by society. And he could pretty much inherently do whatever he felt like. And mm. if I'm extrapolating correctly, I think that this means he felt like if I'm doing it, it's because God wants me to. And That's I'm like, not going to do evil, terrible, sinful things because God wouldn't have me do those things. Therefore, whatever I do is kind of God's will. He declared himself as perfect and totally sin free. You know, he's like, I am perfect. It has been said by God's most righteous warrior, me. (laughs) Therefore, it must be true. And all of this obviously started to irk his professors and his classmates at (laughs) Yale who did not believe this. And he was actually denied his ordination so he could not become a minister. Some of them even branded him a heretic. Mm. But you know what? Whatever. Who cares? He didn't need them. He left school and he went on this tour of New England trying to find disciples that would subscribe to his radical new beliefs. And the first person he found was Abigail Merwin. John was 22, Abigail was 30, and she was beautiful and talented and had a real way with words that John knew was going to be helpful to them in finding other converts. Mm. And after a few months, he was desperately in love with her. Together, they got involved at the New Haven Free Church and started making moves there to develop their faith based on becoming totally sin-free. But then Johnny went down to New York City. And as is common when you go to New York City, he had a mental breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it doesn't take long. I've had no less than five panic attacks (laughs) in New York City (laughs) in my 12 trips there probably in my lifetime. 
he's like, so many carriages. Oh, my God. (laughs) He was stumbling around the grounds of New York University, and he looked up, and he saw a vision of Abigail standing on the roof of the building in the stance of an angel. And he thought, oh, she's so beautiful. This must be a sign. But then he heard a voice say, John! Are you there, John? It's me, God. Don't trust that lady. She's actually Satan transformed into an angel of light. Damn. Okay, God, laying it out. Also, stop wearing your shoes in the house. It's just not good, John. You see the piss you're stumbling in right now? Wow. Take them off at the door. God had some sage advice. (laughs) Well, that was enough for John, at least the first part. He starts telling everybody about this vision that he had of Abigail and of God telling him that she was an agent of Satan and, you know, there to disrupt all his work. And it wasn't long before word of this got back to Abigail and her brother-in-law, Everard Benjamin. And so Everard rode down to New York City to be like, what the hell is going on with John? Hey, John. All right, buddy, come on, let's get you home. Uh I think you've had enough New York City for a while. (laughs) Sure. And he put him in a boat, and they they went back to Connecticut from there. But later, John found out that Abigail was actually on that boat, too, hiding from him. Now, we can surmise that this is probably Abigail, like, checking in on John. She's like, this guy, like my boyfriend and the guy I've been working with for a while now, said that I'm Satan. And, Mm -hmm. like, there's something wrong. Like, he's sick or something. He probably needs some help. So I'm not going to go say hi to him. He thinks I'm Satan, but I want to be close (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just try and, you know, make sure he's okay. Yeah. But John found out that she was there and and hiding from him. Mm -hmm. And he took that as like a confirmation that she was up to no good, that she was part of some nefarious scheme. And, you know, it's like like, lurking in the shadows of the boat. Yeah, exactly. So like if you're, you know, if your friend thinks that you're trying to assassinate them, you don't go you know, peer in their windows at night to make sure they're okay (laughs) because they're going to see you and be like, oh my God, you're trying to kill me, you know? Damn, these are some crossed wires. Yeah, exactly. So this this was really bad for for their relationship and he he really took it to its most extreme place. So he tried to talk to her about this afterwards after kind of accusing her of being the devil, but he was acting really crazy about it, obviously. She was afraid to talk to him. And eventually her father forbade John from ever seeing her again. Mm. So John did what any sane person would do and just starts obsessively writing her letters, trying to get communication with her. Right. And letter after letter, she would not respond. In fact, she had called up an old boyfriend of hers named Merritt Platt, (laughs) which is the most 1800s name I've ever read. Merritt Platt is so good. And Abigail and Merritt Platt left New Haven and went to Ithaca, New York together to get married far away from John and his craziness. Well, John heard about this. It's January of 1837. He hears about this wedding. He's real mad that he didn't get an invite, I guess. (laughs) And he decided to march on foot from Kingston, New York to Ithaca, which is 165 miles and according to Google Maps, a 54-hour walk. He's like, I would walk 165 miles <laughs> and I wouldn't walk another mile more. Yeah, right. <laughs> he wrote the walk was, quote, for the purpose of, on the one hand, 
starting the kingdom of God in the center of New York State, and on the other of pursuing and confronting Abigail Merwin, who had deserted her post as my helper. (laughs) So he's like, I'm not following you to Ithaca because you married your ex-boyfriend. I'm going for super religious reasons because God told me to. And, you know, while I'm there, I guess I'll check in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's a, it's a stretch, buddy. God just wants me to conveniently go to exactly where you are uh-huh. to start this old kingdom. Well, surprisingly, Abigail did not see John stumble into town and then kick her husband out and run outside to throw her arms around him. What? No. In a shocking turn of events, she actually just didn't want to have anything to do with her weird old stalker. (laughs) You don't say. So, surely, totally unrelated to this woman marrying her ex-boyfriend, John started a publication called The Battle Axe. And its first article was all about how dumb the institution of marriage was. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote, quote, When the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, there will be no marriage. Exclusiveness, jealousy, quarreling have no place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He also made it pretty clear that he felt that he was God's agent on earth. Right. So again, sort of a prophet kind of vibe coming from Yeah, I was going to say, as if he hadn't made that clear already. Right. But I guess he was like, it's my paper. I really want to put it right (laughs) right out there for everybody (laughs) how it's going. Okay, so John's saying marriage is no good, right? Right. Totally not a cool thing. Well, then, (laughs) get this. A woman named Harriet Holton caught wind of these articles in the publication, The Battle Axe, and she was so fascinated by what John was saying that she met with him and started to fund John's work. She had a bunch of, you know, affluence in her family, Mm -hmm. too, and a ton of money, and she's just like, this is the guy. I'm going to start funding his worth. They start hanging out. They partner up. And when John finally started to get over Abigail, he started to see Harriet as her replacement. And he went to her and he said, basically, hey, uh, so glad you're interested in all my anti-marriage writings. So what do you say you and I get hitched? Huh? Want to get married? Uh, (laughs) I mean, that just seems weird. Just sit with that for a second. We're going to get into what the hell he was thinking and how this all turned into a big sex commune (laughs) right after this commercial break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations 
Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question. I promise you have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Well, welcome back to the sex commune, I guess. <laughs> all right. So here's the thing about this marriage that John proposes to Harriet. This is John all over. Judy Berman writes in a Gawker article that, quote, noise theology tended to evolve in hilariously, if also sometimes devastatingly, self-serving ways. Like this guy, John, is like, Oh, my girlfriend ran off to marry her ex? Well, actually, you know, when you look at the Bible, marriage is actually pretty dumb. And then he meets this other girl who's totally into him, and he's like, actually, you know what? There's a way that marriage makes a lot of sense. So he kind of forms his ideas sort of based around whatever's sort of going on with him at the time, it seems like. Well, again, if he's thinking that, like, I'm this perfect avatar of God. Yeah then everything I do is right. Yeah. So if whatever I'm feeling like Makes I should sense. do yeah. is what I should do. Yeah, because absolutely. God's telling me or or some it's some it's God working through me. Right. It's just like him deciding that God wants him to do this kingdom right where Abigail happened to be yeah, living. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. It all matches a little conveniently, but you can see why he would talk himself into that. But he made it very clear to Harriet that this was different from a usual marriage. This was going to be a spiritual marriage, Mm. even though there would be plenty of physical aspects to it. (laughs) 
and that the whole purpose of their marriage was to advance the work of God in which they were engaged. Huh. Also, people were saying, the rumors were spreading that in John's little religious movement here, celibacy was a big thing. And John wanted to get it plain and clear through people's pants that that was not <laughs> his deal. He said, you can definitely fuck in my church. I want everyone to know that. Boners, welcome. <laughs> yes, because it was, you know, that would have kept people out for sure. Sure. But it's also an interesting little peek into how people put marriage and sex together. Well, yeah. Because he was only saying no marriage, but they were immediately like, well, that must mean celibacy. Exactly. And John really wanted to separate those things. Mm -hmm. He was also totally open and honest about the fact that the financials didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, Harriet had a lot of affluence. Yep. She was the granddaughter of the lieutenant governor of Vermont. And after they got married, she helped him buy a printing press and a house. Pretty dope. Yeah. I'd like just one of those things. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's not the printing press. <laughs> anyway, they, start pu they started putting out a publication called The Witness. And then he helped two of his closest followers marry his two sisters, who also got interested in his teachings. Hmm. And then he got his younger brother involved. And eventually he even talked his mom into joining. Hmm. And she wasn't too keen on his teaching styles, but he probably was like, gave her the old, I'm, I'm like this because of you, mom. Remember <laughs> right, that yeah. fire festival? <laughs> and eventually she relented and got involved. And so right. anyway, they, they begat and begat right, their members. Yeah. Everybody bring your friends, uh -huh. you know, tell everybody they can come out here. There's, we can have sex. Marriage <laughs> is like not a thing. We're not even worried about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can definitely fuck at this church. Tell them that first. <laughs> yeah, tell them number one. <laughs> not celibate. Really got to change that branding. The priority is. <laughs> so by the mid-1840s, this little group called the Putney Bible School had about 37 members. And in 1848, they moved to Oneida, New York, where they formed a little commune. And they lived in three houses, ran two farms, worshipped in one little chapel, and had zero interest in traditional views on marriage and sex. That's right. I should say they were chased out of Connecticut when they went to Oneida, oh. New York, because there was definitely everywhere they went. There were some people who were like, I'm not cool with what you're doing. <laughs> so this is around when John Noyes developed what he called complex marriage. Uh, John also coined the term free love that we're so familiar with, oh. with like the hippie movement in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. He felt that the traditional form of marriage was, quote, a form of legalism from which Christians should be free. So he felt like marriage as we knew it in society was a legal thing. And that and that inherently went against religious teachings. They were like, why are you obeying more of the law telling you that you're a united couple mm. rather than doing it God's way? He also thought it was, quote, a selfish institution in which men exerted rights of ownership over women which is insanely progressive I mean, for the yeah. time that someone was That's like, I don't true. like the way. I mean, that was sort of his feeling is like, we all belong to God. We are not owned by each other. Mm -hmm. So the very concept of like, you are my wife is kind of nonsense because no one is anyone's anything. Huh. We're all God's people, right? Okay. It's kind of explained a little better by when John looked at this passage in the Bible. It's Matthew 22, verses about 23 to 30. And basically what happens there is that 
Some guy walks up to Jesus and he's like, Hey, Jesus, um, Moses said that if I die and have no kids, my brother is supposed to marry my wife, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so if there's like seven brothers and the oldest brother gets married and he dies and they don't have any kids, then she would go and marry the next youngest brother, right? That's what it says. Okay, and then when that brother dies, she would marry the next brother, right? And so and so on and so on, eventually she marries all seven brothers. Okay, get to the point. Okay, well, I'm saying like when everyone's dead and we're all in heaven, whose wife is she? Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) And Jesus's actual response in that passage is, quote, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So John is basically like, look, It says here in the Bible that marriage doesn't exist in heaven. That's something we made up. And when we all get there, none of that shit's going to matter. So why are we doing it here? That's pretty much against what God's beliefs are. Well, and his whole thing is building heaven on earth. So you have to build the same rules from heaven as you do on earth. Right, right? exactly. So he's like, "Uh uh-oh, we're doing it wrong. (laughs) So it's kind of like everyone's married and no one's married. It's complex marriage, as he called it. And... If everyone's married and no one's married, that meant (laughs) that you could pretty much have sex with anyone or no one. I like your little sussy voice. (laughs) (laughs) He felt that possessiveness and exclusive relationships were literally going against what Jesus taught. So if you wanted to get your freak on with, and this was key to John's teachings, anyone who consented... Okay, that's You totally could. Good, okay. If you didn't want to have any sex, you could just not have sex. And if you wanted to have sex with anyone and they were into it, I could go for it. Wow. Right? Sounds fun. But, you know, lots of sex. That means lots of babies. Yeah. And... I mean, not only was this a pretty small commune at this point, they couldn't necessarily afford to be having a bunch of children running around, but also the women weren't all that interested in joining a group where they were going to be just constantly knocked up. Yeah, right? Uh, I would definitely be like, wait a minute, what now? (laughs) (laughs) So anyone can have sex with me and I'm just going to be pregnant 24-7? No. (laughs) 365? I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And John was like, you know what, ladies? I totally hear you. You know, I you're seen and heard here <laughs> hey, at Oneida. <laughs> there you go. There you go, John. But he's like, but there's two kinds of sex. There's procreative sex. Obviously, that's from making the babies. <laughs> but then there's amative sex, which is just for funsies. Oh my, okay, oh fine. That sounds cool, John. But how do you have funsy sex without having the baby sex? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> yeah, Trojan's not a thing yet, I don't think. <laughs> exactly. And John said, boys, that's on you. What? And he taught and encouraged something called male continence. That was for men to have sex without ejaculating. Ooh. Not only does this stop us from producing unwanted children, John said, but it also helps teach you self-control. Huh. John wrote, quote, It is as foolish and cruel to expend one seed on a wife merely for the sake of getting rid of it as it would be to fire a gun at one's best friend merely for the sake of unloading it. That's quite a leap. I, I mean, feel him. <laughs> I get what he's saying. 
but the comparison is very intense. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well. <laughs> but I mean, look at that. He's putting the onus of pregnancy uh-huh. on the sperm carriers. And, yeah, know? I do like that. And I think Absolutely. that's a really important part of the conversation of birth control is that like sperm makes babies too. Yeah. It shouldn't just be the <laughs> uterus holder's job yeah. to prevent that from right. happening. It needs to be kind of a combined effort. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, literally, y'all can have as much sex as you want. Just don't uh, don't ejaculate inside someone. <laughs> and the men were all like, um, r- really, John? Is that what we're doing here? <laughs> and John, you know, probably like, hey, gu- hey, guys, I'm trying here. You know, like, do you, wa- you want to have a bunch of sex or not? Because like, yeah, sex a few times is great. But do you know what makes it a lot harder to have sex? bunch of babies running around, you know? A lot harder to have sex when the place is full of kids because of all the sex you had. True, or everyone's <laughs> pregnant. Right, they're exactly. Not they're not feeling it, you know? But here's the thing. Over the years, John's wife, Harriet, had given birth five times, all of which were very traumatic pregnancies. And out of those five, only one child survived. So to him, male continence was a way to spare his wife another difficult and dangerous pregnancy. So this is kind of another strange example of what we were talking about earlier, where John's sort of personal life is definitely informing his religious policy, despite the fact that he truly believes this religious policy is a real thing. Well, and I like I do like how courteous he's trying to be right. of her pregnancy experience yeah. because yeah. you know that happened to a lot of women and plenty of men did not care you know they're yeah. just like you're i need you to give me babies so yeah. until you have a few that live we're just going to keep trying right at least he was finally like you know what let's not do that to yeah. you yeah and one of the most unusual things about this group too is how much focus they put on women's sexual satisfaction wow so few Finally. groups have focused on that. <laughs> Very few groups, yeah. indeed. And the women loved male continence. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way to do it, ladies. They're into this idea. <laughs> if a man failed to withhold his seed at the <laughs> seminal moment, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was seen as a shameful thing Uh, He potentially faced being rejected by that woman if he tried to come back for more. Uh And he could even be publicly called out for, you know, they'd be like, this guy ejaculated, period, like (laughs) premature, not even part of it, just at all. (laughs) This guy came on me. (laughs) And women were also encouraged to have orgasms. Wow. This is boggling my mind. What a society. And they were given all these freedoms in Oneida that they could not find elsewhere. They were able to wear bloomers instead of the traditional restrictive heavy dresses. Mm-hmm. They could have short haircuts. These fr- these freedoms, my God, I'm heady. <laughs> I'm heady with the freedom of being able to cut my hair short, my God. <laughs> and they participated in all kinds of community work, uh, from business and sales to craft making and arts. You know, they weren't like left out of anything right. for their tender gender. right. And they shaped community policy. They participated in daily meetings. And what children the community had were generally raised by a communal child care system. So it was not fully on just one member of the household to take care of everyone. So all the sex you want, 
uh-huh. uh, as few babies as you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no gender disparity in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no salary going on here. It's it's a it's biblical communism they called it, where you know everybody gets what they need. This is I I'm considering it. That's pretty dope. I'm considering it at this point in the story. (laughs) I know, right? Very important caveat. (laughs) Now, John also touted a system called mutual criticism, where every member of the community would get sat down and told about themselves. Yeesh. (laughs) Some of us would handle this not as well as others. Poorly. <laughs> I agree. I'm not looking at anyone in this room. You know what? I'm just saying. You know what? Some people would I'm take I'm feeling it. attacked right now uh, by your criticism. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes you would sit there for like a half an hour while it just went around in a circle and everybody just listed what they thought was wrong with you. <laughs> you know, like, Jesus. Like, well, Chester... Uh, yesterday, I saw you feeling up all the apples and you were putting back all the ones you didn't like. You know, if you touch an apple, take an apple, quite <laughs> frankly. Chester? Chester, I hate how you how you clip all your toenails in front of everyone. Oh, it's disgusting. God, he does deserve to Do be that in private. Himself. Chester, please. Jesus. Chester! <laughs> fix your face, Chester. <laughs> yeah, just fix your face, Chester. <laughs> I'm so sick of your stupid, <laughs> smug look all the time. Chester's like, it's just my face. Just how my face looks. So that's pretty much how it went down. And at the end of it, John would stand up and say, all right, we know Chester here has been a real dick lately, <laughs> but uh, he's trying. He knows what he did. So Chester, if you were listening and you can stop being such a piece of shit, then uh, we're all good here. The air is clear. And now we're all that much closer to being perfect because that was obviously the goal was to achieve this perfection, Mm -hmm. this totally free of all sin and judgment. And this was a way to just kind of improve everyone little by little. If you were told about yourself, then you could shed those flaws and you could get better. Right, and I guess everybody got their turn. Yeah. So you didn't feel like over, like piled on. Yes. Like and, you, and so even, you got your chance to say exactly. everyone too. And even John sat mm-hmm. for that circle. Oh, so okay. so cool. everybody had it. You know, John was obviously like Mr. Perfect. I was about to say, what did they say to him? <laughs> he was the one who was probably like, well, you're wrong, actually, because I'm perfect. Actually, everything I say and do is exactly right. But... <laughs> I don't know if you heard, but I can't sin. <laughs> I know. But if you don't like it, I'm welcome to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, male continence, mutual criticism, and complex marriage were like the three pillars of perfection. They were like the keys to attaining this perfection, this complete freedom from sin. And ultimately, this would help them achieve eternal life on earth in Christ's millennial kingdom. And that was literal. This was not a metaphorical live forever. This was if we fuck around enough Mm -hmm. and we're really good to each other, then we will actually live forever. So anyone could do it with anyone. Uh-huh. Consent was important. Right. Men held the responsibility for birth control. Wow. No one had any ownership over anyone else. Nice. And everyone was an equal participant in their community and all were provided for. Okay. And there, there sounds like no downside to this. I'm Why saying. did this lifestyle not take off? Right. And we're not all living in our own little Oneida communities right now. <laughs> Seriously. Well, Uh-oh. you can't fuck around. Without finding out. Oh, man. So, we'll find out right after this. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the find out part. (laughs) The part no one likes. (laughs) Why can't we just fuck around without finding out? I'm sick of finding out. (laughs) By 1852, the community numbered at about 300 members. And there were actually other satellite communities in Connecticut and New Jersey and Vermont. So this forward thinking sex party was really starting to catch on. Mm -hmm. Remember, these people were literally called perfectionists. They believe that it was possible to be completely free of sin in this world. They believe that Jesus' second coming happened in the year 70 AD, which is like Pompeii, right? Like that's like when Vesuvius erupted. It was 79. So <laughs> Jesus was like, a... I won't take a vacation there. No reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're saying Jesus came back like less than 100 years after he left. Mm-hmm. So they were like, this was quick. It already happened. So they thought their purpose here as a community was to bring about his millennial kingdom, which is where he rules over this perfect, peaceful utopia for a thousand years. So how did all that 
tie into this free love polyamorous 24-7 sex fest that they were living in. Well, in the Berman article on Gawker, she interviews Ellen Wayland Smith, who's a writing professor at USC and also a distant descendant of one of John Noyes' sisters. And she grew up thinking, John's pretty great. You know, basically, she was just told John and his people were, quote, social reformers who thought everyone should live equally, and they created this utopian community experiment. Sounds great. But Wayland Smith says that when you really look into John's history, quote, that guy was batshit. (laughs) A a nice sum up (laughs) of this whole thing. She says he was incredibly charismatic. He just completely captivated his followers. And an interview with a veteran of the community who lived into the 1960s said, quote, when you were in his presence, you wanted to do anything he told you to do. Wayland Smith says that John combined his religious beliefs with some made-up pseudoscience to justify these sexual standards. Mm. So John believed sex was literally a form of divine electricity. (laughs) And it fueled this heavenly battery that could support eternal life. Wayland Smith said, quote, The more you had sex and the more evenly the sexual energy was spread throughout the whole body, the less sick you would be. Death would disappear once you had attained perfect equilibrium of divine energy through all the bodies in the community. Sure. Okay, so sex magic. (laughs) um, Holy sex magic. Saying that basically, like, if everybody in this little commune fucks around enough, mm-hmm. then we will all sort of spread this divine energy through each other. Right. And when it settles in perfect balance between all of us, we'll live forever. Does that mean Makes that if sense. you... That tracks with science from what I know of sure. sex batteries. <laughs> that <laughs> makes is... perfect sense. So does that mean that if you were not a person who wanted to have a lot of sex, uh-huh. did he feel that the rest of the community could have enough sex to make up for your lack of sexual activity? Or did he eventually evolve to thinking like everyone has to have sex? I mean, I can only go into Sexulation Station oh, about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, but... I hope I hope that room's been cleaned <laughs> recently. <laughs> um, but I would say, from what I gather, again from cursory research on this guy's very complicated life and beliefs, that he would say that the amount you wanted to have sex was the right amount. Was the right amount? Yeah, it was. Mm. It was parallel to how much sexual energy you had and oh. and the perfect level was for everyone to be sexually satisfied whatever that meant for them he has there's there's a character that we, we won't really go into today but i really encourage you to read up on this story because there's just so much more than we're going to have time to talk about but his niece was this girl who loved to fuck mm-hmm. and she was known as being like so ready to go and she loved this lifestyle and she was all about it and to to the point where it was like an honor to have sex with her because she was probably really good at it. <laughs> she was like really went for True. it aggressively, <laughs> right? And I'll share a little bit more about her later at the end of the story. But um, but she was someone who probably had a lot of that energy to share mm-hmm. and needed to needed to spread it around the community some, <laughs> you know. Whereas like if you just had a little, and we're just like I just like it on you know once a month mm-hmm. on the weekends or something. 
So he's like, everyone has a different battery. Yeah. That needs a different size. Yeah. Uh, we'll charge it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Right. And the thing about male continence was that it went further than just not ejaculating during sex to stop procreation. He actually believed that ejaculating drained men of their life force. <gasps> So men could not masturbate either. Wayland Smith writes, quote, men were never allowed to have an orgasm in this community. So I guess it ties back into what we talked about earlier about how, like, you know, emptying your gun at a friend. <laughs> it's like, if you're going to do that, it better be to get someone pregnant. Oh. Um, he also felt that limiting sex to marriage meant young people faced, quote, sexual starvation from the point that they hit puberty until they got married in their early 20s. Hmm. But um, how do you raise young men to learn to appreciate sex without having orgasms? Well, he felt we have to train them to do this properly. And who's going to train them? Well, he encouraged women who'd already gone through menopause to help teenage boys practice sex without ejaculating. Oh. So that would like minimize the risk of pregnancy because he's like, you know, they're going to fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not going to yeah. get this right away. We're gonna <laughs> so, have, we're going to have to make allowances. Super weird that there's these women and teenage boys. Definitely. Practicing sex. Mm. Uh, certainly by today's standards. Big problem. And even weirder for some reason. Uh, likewise, older men were often introducing young women to sex Ew. as well. No. So this was not quite as common. But John himself uh, is said to have taken part in that a sure. few times. He's Mr. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't you want him to do be your first? Uh-huh. But all in all, what's really crazy was that this whole idea of a sex battery uh... to conquer death and support eternal life just shockingly was not really playing out. What? After 20 years of this little sex experiment... John looked around and was like, wait a minute, people are still dying. That's crazy. Something must be wrong, and surely I must have the solution. So in the late 1860s, John developed an experiment called stirpiculture, derived from the Latin word stirps, which means stalk, stem, or root. Mm. John felt like they needed more spiritually and physically perfect children. Uh-oh. Which, of course, meant selective breeding, or as we call it today, eugenics. Boo! And how could they determine who was of good breeding stock? Who could pick out the spiritually and physically perfect people worthy of bringing children into their community? Well, Mr. Perfect, John Noyes himself, of course. Of course. People who wanted to be parents would go before a committee presided over by John Noyes and make their case to be approved as breeding parents. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, 53 women and 38 men were selected and 58 children were born, nine of whom were fathered by John himself. Oh, he, you mean he picked himself out as one of the perfect people? Who knew? I, I wonder if, if he was like... <laughs> Oh, she's really pretty. Uh-huh. Hey, guys, what do you think about her? And the other people in the committee would be like, I don't know. I mean, she's a little short or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, just 
I'm telling you, it's a good one. She's a good one. Don't <laughs> yeah, put her on the list. You take her. Well, no, but I think John himself and, and Wayland Smith writes this, that the, these selections were pretty political mm. when it came down to it. And yeah, I think John did have his pick. Sure. And, you know, when he Very tells cool. a woman, this is where it gets kind of dicey. He would tell a woman, oh, you know, you're so perfect that you and I should have sex because God wants it. And whether or not she wanted to with him, it's kind of coercion. Yeah. Because he's telling her, you know, God says we should have sex because you're perfect. I'm perfect. Hey, baby, come on. What are we doing here? Why are we wasting time? Mm-hmm. This is perfection. This is destiny, you and me. And we've all heard that line what at the bar. Line. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. In li- That is definitely not cool. I mean, right. so many religion, religious men and women have used that. Yeah. I guess I should say mostly religious men. Mostly I, religious I don't men. think there's too many religious <laughs> women, but uh, there surely is some out there. But definitely religious men have used it as an excuse and told plenty of people, like, this is the way to make the Lord happy with yeah. you. And what do you, you know, you believe your priest. That's right. like the person you're supposed to be able to, tr- to right. trust. Right. Now, these children, the 58 children who were born over the 10 years that this was happening, were raised communally in a wing that they built on the Oneida Community Mansion House. And there were designated supervisors to make sure that they followed a particular routine as they grew up. Now, their biological parents were allowed to visit them, but if it was determined by the supervisors or John or anyone on the committee that there was a strong bond growing between a parent and child, they would enforce a period of separation because they didn't want there to be a specific affectionate relationship between any of the kids and any particular adults. It was all about the community and not about these like smaller family units. Hmm. So the kids were raised with a lot of care and attention. They were diligently attended to. They were super well fed. They were very well educated. And their education didn't have gender enforcements. Like uh, girls would also learn to be machinists. Boys would also learn how to weave cloth. Like there was no idea of like boys do this, girls do that. It was everyone does everything. They shared toys. They were taught not to value possession. And I'll tell you, I looked and looked and tried to find who these people or their descendants were. Couldn't find anything specific. You know, maybe you're one of the descendants <gasps> of these perfect children. <laughs> they look like all any one of us. <laughs> maybe they all got mutant superpowers and mm-hmm. started a school in upstate New York. That, oh, my God. Wait a second. Oh, my God. Is this guy Charles Xavier? <laughs> <laughs> what a twist. Hang on. Um, But apparently these kids all did grow up and live long, happy, healthy lives. Some of the boys grew up and went to Yale uh, because only boys could go to Yale at the time. Uh, They became physicians, engineers, architects, chemists, things like that. Uh, The girls were offered the opportunity to go to art schools or whatever colleges they were accepted into. Uh, You know, not not a bad situation for them, ultimately, aside from the weird, weird social upbringing they had. Mm hmm. But stirpiculture was the very first eugenics-type experiment in the United States, and it did go on for about 10 years. So Berman notes that noise did have the power to dictate who was breeding with whom, as you said. By today's standards, that can certainly look like coercion or worse. Right. As we're talking about, Waylon Smith says that, quote, Women were introduced to sex whether they wanted it or not when they were 12 to 14 years old. Mm. Gross. The age of consent in New York at the time was horrifically 12 years old. Yeah. 
She says that, quote, the thing that bothers me is that the people who initially signed on to this thing were consenting adults. Then the new generation was born into it. They didn't know anything else. Part of being in the community was that you had sex. And they were not consenting because they were not of age by contemporary standards. That's so tough. You just want to go back and be like, if I can just tweak this little commune. I know, right? It might be great. It might be totally fine. Mm-hmm. So many good ideas that are totally yeah. like being overshadowed by the shitty part. Yeah, exactly. That sucks. Exactly. It's like, and we, it's not cool. Why don't you have exactly this little sex party that you have going on here? Uh-huh. No rules, just right. <laughs> Um, blooming onions, whatever. <laughs> and then maybe the age of consent is 18. And then you figure it out. And also on. maybe there's not a committee to determine who has sex with who. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> and maybe, you know, people can breed when they want to. And it's not like a selection committee. You take that out. I know. And what you're left with is a pretty decent little party. Yeah. With the stirpiculture thing. Yeah. Really upended. I mean, there's definitely right. some weird shit before that. But like. They really <laughs> put a horrible, <laughs> horrible record scratch into this whole thing. Yeah. And also that. maybe allow men to orgasm. Like, you know, even be fine putting the onus of pregnancy on them and saying you can't you can't just get a woman pregnant every time you want to have sex. That's fine. Um, but also like, you know, well, hand stuff is OK. <laughs> <laughs> you throw right. that in there and it's a lot cooler. Hand stuff is OK. <laughs> but Waylon Smith points out that John, quote, may not have been a feminist, but he did a lot to liberate women. She talks about how 19th century women in America were, on average, giving birth to seven children in their lifetimes. And those were very difficult. A lot of those children didn't survive. Sometimes the women themselves didn't survive or had really debilitating health problems afterwards. And then they would still have to spend the rest of their lives pretty much raising these children. I mean, if you're having seven kids in your lifetime and they all survive... You're raising kids for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, and the fact that John mandated that that didn't have to be women's lives, that they didn't even have to get pregnant ever if they didn't want to, was totally revolutionary in its own right. Sure thing. That the basic idea behind perfectionism was just to build a society where everyone treated each other equally seems like a fantasy even by today's standards. (laughs) So the fact that he was doing this in like the late 1800s is still kind of mind blowing. Again, if you can take away all the creepy stuff. I mean, yeah, it's just tough to take away all the creepy stuff. Exactly. You just want to. You want to rip it out. (laughs) Like you almost had it, John. You're so close. (laughs) And like this wasn't just a big fuck fest for decades. Okay, they got to work. Right. (laughs) They were work, and they would work. The community put their skills to work, and they produced furniture, bags, silk, preserved fruits. Collectively, they were making the equivalent of millions of dollars today. Yeah. That collective labor, pretty pretty productive. Yeah. And I should add that their work days weren't even super intense. Hmm. Like, it wasn't like, you know, they, they weren't up at 4 a.m. raising a barn. They, you know, <laughs> they had a normal average work day. It wasn't too hard. Then they, they I, presumably just fucked all night. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say they would retire to the orgy room yeah. or whatever. But in 1876, John attempted to pass leadership on to his son, Theodore. But Theodore was actually agnostic, and he didn't have his father's charisma, He tried to lead with a much tighter, stricter rule set than his father, and the community was, like, not down with the changes he was making. Right. 
Um, there was a point where things got so bad that John had to come back and try to patch things up. Oh, no. It's but like Bob Iger. Exactly. Like I'm like, <laughs> it's tough when you base everything on one cult of personality and yeah. then you try to pass it on and keep yeah. it going. Like, that's not really a sustainable right, thing. Right, right. So, yeah, it was pretty messy. A guy named James Towner led an internal revolt, and he had his own little group of followers who weren't listening to John's son at all. Mm. Well, and of course, outside the community, a lot of religious leaders were talking mad shit about what John was doing here. They said that he was deteriorating morals and bringing about the end of traditional marriage. To which, you know, John's like, yeah, that's, yeah. I told you that's the point. Like, It's the first it's thing not, I not said. A, not a revelation. <laughs> <laughs> they... Really hated how much freedom women were being given, of course. They criticized them as having a, quote, peculiar air of unhealthiness brought on by sexual excess. Oh, they have roses in their cheeks all (laughs) the time. Yes. It can't, it looks feverish. Something's wrong with those women. Their lips are always curled upwhere in some horrific expression (laughs) of, of, what is that, joy? (laughs) Oh, they look like the Joker. So they were always looking for a way to bring noise down. And finally, in 1879, they found it. Professor John Mears of Hamilton College organized a big protest meeting with a bunch of other clergymen from around the state. And John was informed by one of his close confidants that these guys had put together a warrant to arrest him on the charges of adultery and statutory rape. He's like, true. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I resemble that accusation. <laughs> if only I had gone to law school, I might be able to argue my way out of yeah, it. Yeah, right. I mean, he saw the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. He knew they were coming for him and he did not have a good argument to get out of it. So in the middle of the night, he dipped. He fled to Ontario, Canada, where the community owned a factory And fearing more legal pressures from the outside, he wrote back to his community, Oneida, and he told them, hey, you guys need to dissolve this whole complex marriage thing. You guys need to figure out how to live in a more traditional manner because he really feared, and they did too, that they were all about to get arrested on adultery charges. Sure. I mean, if they could use it against him, they could Uh use it against anyone. Yep. But Waylon Smith again points out his seemingly total devotion to his beliefs. So even after telling people, like, forget it, you know, let's not all get arrested here, he still really believed all of the things he said. Uh Uh-huh. And after he got booted from the U.S., he apparently wrote to Queen Victoria in England and asked her to join his campaign to start God's heaven on earth. Waylon Smith says that in his diary, he's completely matter-of-fact about it and just earnestly believed that this was his (laughs) life's purpose. I mean... I mean, he started with Queen Victoria? (laughs) That's the thing, though. He just like, oh, that's the most logical thing. That's what God would want me to do. She's got a lot of influence. Why didn't I start with her the first time, you know? I wonder if she opened all her own mail at that point and was just like, what in the world? Dear Queen Vicky, Mm -hmm. uh, how'd you like (laughs) to fuck all night, never worry about babies, wear whatever you want, and cut your hair short? Have I got a plan for you? She wrote back like, oh, sounds jolly good, but I'm currently having seances to try to speak with my husband from beyond the grave. <laughs> yeah, so right. Yeah. I already have my hands full. Good luck getting your hands full with someone else. <laughs> Love, Queen Victoria. She was otherwise occupied with a totally different crazy idea. I, and I can't wait to get to her. One yeah. day we will. But back in Oneida, 
External pressures and all the failed new leadership meant that the community was breaking apart. And, you know, again, all them were fearing adultery charges as well. So a lot of the members ended up pairing off and getting traditionally married. Yeah. Typically, it was just like whoever you lived with. All right, let's just do this so they can't arrest us. Who's my favorite? Uh, Henry, get over here. (laughs) Oh, man, imagine getting picked last in that gym Uh, class group. Horrible. (laughs) All right, everybody pick who you're going to marry. And they're all I'll take Timmy. I'll take Susie. (laughs) And then, like, poor Billy is left at the end. Oh, no, poor Chester. (laughs) Well, we told you about yourself, Chester, and you didn't get any better. You still got that stupid look on your face. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, it's called sadness. (laughs) So the business side of things was converted into a corporation, and members of Oneida were issued shares in the company, where manufacturing continued. And in 1886, John Noyes' sex battery was finally depleted, and he passed away. His body went back to Oneida, and he was buried in the communal cemetery there. Afterwards, James Towner, the guy who had led the internal revolt and like had his own followers, he took his people and their share of the wealth, which was substantial, Mm -hmm. and they moved out west to California. They bought huge chunks of land, and the governor of California, recognizing all their political power, carved out a little piece of the state for them. He appointed James Towner the judge, and he named it Orange County. (gasps) The O.C.! That's where the O.C. Without him, we would not have Ben McKenzie today. You know, it explains a lot about the show. There was a lot of people fucking oh, sure. sucking around they were still, the show. Still living that lifestyle. <laughs> they they did. Um, they continued to have this sort of socialist free love lifestyle out there, but they kept it way more quiet than the Oneida group ever did because mm-hmm. uh, they saw what happened and they were like, we don't want all this external shit coming in and ruining our orgy. Yeah, it was the proselytizing that really fucked yeah. it up for us. Yeah. And then in the early 1900s, the company that they formed, Oneida Community Limited, narrowed their focus strictly to producing silverware. Mm. All the furniture making, the silk, the canning industry, all that eventually fizzled out, just wasn't profitable. And Oneida eventually became the leading brand of silverware in the United States. (laughs) But in 2004, they ceased all U.S. manufacturing operations. They've been closing down facilities ever since. But they do still manufacture overseas. They still sell silverware. And the FAQ page on their website mentions absolutely nothing <laughs> about free love, John Noise, or sex batteries. <laughs> Surprisingly I guess, enough. I guess I'm not surprised Look, <laughs> by that. I'm just saying, I think that all of us should email Oneida and ask them something about this sex commune and right. get them to put it on their FAQ yeah, page. Yeah, maybe Wait, it let's, just hasn't been asked often enough. Let's make it a frequently <laughs> asked question. Everyone who hears this episode, write to Oneida today and ask them about John Noyes' <laughs> sex battery. Please don't. I don't want Oneida like suing us for harassment. Because... <laughs> how, how could they? How could they? This is all fact. <laughs> Look, I'm just... Very interested in their company policy. <laughs> on, like, uh, we're very hush hush about the sex. <laughs> on <batteries>. ejaculation. <laughs> <laughs> How 
funny though. Like that's too. They're like men can't ejaculate. Kellogg was like that. He made cornflakes. So oh men yeah, yeah. Well, so they wouldn't masturbate. Oh, okay, that's true. I guess you that's know. right. It was supposed to like depress your libido or something. Right, right. Cornflakes are very depressing. So <laughs> <laughs> I love cornflakes. They really get me going. <laughs> Cornflakes get me hot. <laughs> Fuck what you heard. Uh-huh. <laughs> Throw some berries in there. Mm-mm. It's all frosted flakes for me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's that sugar. I'm worn out. Sugar, baby. I'm worn out from eating a bowl of frosted flakes <laughs> before anything can happen afterwards. Well, it makes my heart beat faster, but yeah, <laughs> in right. the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, this guy's such a character, and I don't even, Incredible. again, scratches the surface. Oh, I wanted to say about his niece. Mm. Um, she apparently, when they announced like, okay, we're getting rid of our sex cult, we're going to stop complex marriage, we're going to go in traditional shit. On their last day, she went and had sex with three guys <gasps> to like celebrate the end. She was really pissed off that they were getting rid of this because she wanted to I get it. She niece. loved getting it. She was like, all right, you know yeah. what? If I'm going out, I'm going out in a big way. <laughs> yes, she did. Who were those three lucky guys? Her last three. It wasn't Chester, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> she said, not you. <laughs> Get lost, Chester. <laughs> I need the top three of the 58 guys that were allowed to fuck or have many that were. <laughs> right, right. Man, so weird. I'm so weirded out by this. And there's so much more to this story. I mean, a lot of it's like, detailed religious stuff or like mm-hmm. awkward political and legal issues one one family tried to sue to get their daughter out of there or she didn't oh. want to go mm-hmm. um you know everybody seemed to really love it while they were there um we only have you know a bit of uh of just curiosity about the kind of darker side of it um obviously no one was writing down or filing reports of assault or anything like that so we sure. don't know but by and large, most of the accounts of the day, um, the diaries and things like that that people kept, uh, they seem to really like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, the good parts sound great. There's some great shit in there for sure. Yeah. I mean, we need to get rid of the culture. Get rid of eugenics. I think always. That's definitely got to yep, go. Yep. Yep. Maybe the 12 to 14 year old girls and boys should not be fucking yep, older absolutely. people. Absolutely. Raise that's that age of gross. consent. Yep. 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 I don't like that. Nope. Um, um, uh, what else? There was some other uh, things. You could, could, <laughs> could permit male orgasms, probably. Oh, right, Maybe right. not deny them entirely. Um, it does feel like, I mean, sucks to not I ever know. have and an I'm orgasm. Like, who, like... I guess there's how like many a tantric th- element to it. Well, how many of these guys Actually and their partners didn't... were like, well, yeah, well, go ahead and, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll do some other stuff real quick at the end here. Yeah, Let's get I'll rid get of the you, evidence. I'll get you taken care of. Yeah, I mean... You know, maybe I, some women love that part. Right. You know, so yeah. they, they were like, oh, come on. But yeah, man, I don't know. You got to You got to tell us what you think of this one, because I don't know what to make heads or tails of it. It's so all over. the. I'm just like, oh, well, this is pretty good. Oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, he's crazy. Oh, he's brilliant. No, he's terrible. Like, I know. I'm all over the place with this story. And he seems so weird, like. I don't know yeah. what his head looked like. You know, inside his head. Right. <laughs> I'm like, right. what was it like for you in there? Because it seems weird know, on the outside. Right? You had some good ideas again, mm-hmm. but the whole context of his life was so grandiose and yeah. he's such a savior character and he's got this yeah. real kind of narcissism. I mean, it didn't play out in that toxic 
narcissistic way in a lot of ways. But there's still a sense of being very like, I'm right. I know what's what's right. I have this direct connection to to a, a deity that right. allows me to dictate other people's behavior. I mean, right. that's a really weird way to think about the world. It's interesting to think about how having this kind of, you know, what I can only assume is a derangement of some sort mm -hmm. uh, does not automatically mean you're going to use it to the worst possible ends. Right. He had some really great ideas. Mm -hmm. um, they were just wrapped up in bunch of insanity nonsense about sex batteries well it's that authoritarian streak that some people have yeah i feel like i have it too where oh, i'm just yeah. like i know exactly how it should be yeah. you do too by the way uh, <laughs> let us not act well, like yeah i know isolated. but mine's very accurate and you know uh, correct mm, but mm, yours is pretty good <laughs> anyway <laughs> did you hear it did you hear it there <laughs> it came I out a little it. bit i heard it <laughs> But I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah. You know, where you just have this idea of like, I just know how everyone would be happiest. I just know what's best for you. Yeah. And it doesn't always mean that you're like, put everyone who's not white in a box and ship <laughs> right. them off somewhere. Yeah. You know, sometimes it is like a sense of like, I want inclusion and nice things right, for people, right. but you're still trying to dictate other people's lives. Yes. So even if you have this like nice, loving, you know, goal in mind, mm -hmm. it still can feel very similar to the people under you. Yeah. I think, I mean, because yeah. it's just still saying, I know what's best for you, yeah. you know, in kind of a motherly way or fatherly way rather than a fascist way. <laughs> yeah. But it's still that impulse. Yeah. It's like my grandfather always said, the best way to rule the world is through a benevolent dictatorship, but I just don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> that oh. is definitely, you would I say that now. I love that quote. I do say it frequently. <laughs> You do say it. It's so good. But that's 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 what you've got, I think, is that feeling of, like, yeah. I could do it. I'm just, like, not going to do it. Everyone <laughs> would be a lot happier if I was in charge of everything. I promise <laughs> you that. But, God, please don't put me in charge of everything. I don't want to do it. That's what makes me such a good candidate. <laughs> Vote for me because I don't want you to. <laughs> All right, y'all. Let us know what you thought of this. Pitch us your ideas for a sex utopia. We'd love to hear them. Depends on the idea. I would love to take a look at them. <laughs> I don't know if I'd love to repeat them. But go ahead. But send go me ahead, what send you got. If they're good, we'll read them on the show. Well, we the would sex love to... utopia uh, proposal section. Yes, absolutely. We'll do a whole episode. Here's everybody's idea for sex utopias. We'll give everybody three minutes. Go. Do a little pitch. poll online. Get everyone to vote. Yeah. And then we'll start it. <laughs> It'll turn out great. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> Please email us your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. You can reach us at ridicromance at gmail.com. Writer on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. And we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those fun places. Mm -hmm. And of course, tell everyone you know to listen to this episode and all our episodes. Yeah. All right, y'all. We will catch you the next one. Love you. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.